Kentucky's largest doctor's association wants to take our guns away. An op-ed in the Herald Leader calls for a tenant bill of rights in Lexington, and we've seen this creeping all across Kentucky. I go over what that is and how it will achieve exactly the opposite of what these renters want. And finally, I give you my commentary on the GOP presidential primary debate last night. And we're going to have all that more today on the Andrew Cooper Ryder Show. But before we get into it, as always, I'm your host, Andrew Cooper Ryder, and I ask that you please like, comment, share, subscribe uh, to, to the post there, whatever you're listening on. If you're on Facebook, if you're on Twitter, if you're on YouTube, you're on Rumble, you're on Spotify, Apple, Amazon, iHeart, you know, podcasts. I don't, I don't know. Whatever you're on, please like, comment, share. If you have that option, please leave a review. If you have that option, share it with others, spread the word. We're seeing immense amount of growth. I want to keep that going as we dig into some very important stories. I think it's important that we stay informed. So starting us off, Kentucky's largest medical association, the Kentucky Medical Association, that's what's called KMA, has made gun safety and advocacy for tighter gun restrictions a top priority for them in the legislature this year. That's right. <clears throat> this association of, of doctors is prioritizing spending their hard-earned money, quote-unquote hard-earned uh, money on lobbying our legislature to pass stricter gun laws. Now, a lot of people would say, well, if, if you're going to be passing stricter gun laws, and if you want stricter gun laws, at least you should research it out. You would hope these doctors who, you know, as we were all told, uh, do their research, right? They are experts, these doctors on everything medical. And so you, you don't even need to do your own research. The doctors do their research. We were told this in COVID all the time. You just ask your doctor whatever they want to see. And I think when we dig into what the KMA really wants to get done, we'll start to see how stupid these people actually are when at least it comes to guns. And now it makes me doubt their ability to actually do anything medical, because if you're this idiotic and this disingenuous when it comes to guns, what else are you disingenuous about? And of course, as well, I think this certainly points to why having our medical leaders make policy and decide what we're doing in this country makes little sense because there is no balance for rights and what they talk about. There is no balance for constitutionality. Um, they, they just, they literally have no consideration of it. And it becomes very obvious when you take a look at what they want done. So, so what, what are they asking for? What are they saying they're going to lobby our Kentucky state legislature to do? And as I go through this, remember the reason why I focus on Kentucky issues is because you can actually make a difference on this. Your state house reps are elected probably by about three to 4,000 people in the primaries. Your state senators are elected by about 10,000 people in the primaries. Reach out to them and voice your opinions because your voices do matter when people are being elected by in a way, so few. Why? Because one really pissed off person can go out and knock doors, can run their mouth all over town, and certainly can make it harder for a re-election effort. Or one really, really pissed off person decides to file and run against you if you do not take their complaint seriously and if you do not vote in the interests of not only the constitutional rights, but also uh, the ways that your people, your base, wants you to vote. So please make sure your voices are heard. You can call up to the LRC, Legislative Research Commission, call up to the Capitol there and tell them you want to leave a message for uh, your legislator and you'll see uh, it's pretty easy to do. So first we're going to go through, we're going to talk about some of their statements they make in their resolutions here, okay? So first they want universal background checks. And this is their claim. They say 22% of U.S. gun owners acquired their most recent firearm without a background check. And 45% of gun owners who acquired a gun online in the past two years did so without any background check. 80% of firearms attained for criminal pur purposes are obtained through transfers from unlicensed sellers. Now, almost every single one of their stats comes from every town. And every town is a um, advocacy group that really, really wants gun control. And if you ever want to find very, very biased data, and I think the gun control argument certainly is the one where it's 
uh, most obvious. You can cherry pick data all you want to. You can decide I'm going to grab this data and this data and ignore this other data in order to present whatever uh, story you want to. I, I, I have never seen an issue where there's so much data on it. And depending on how you cherry pick it, you can paint whatever picture you want to paint. And that's what every town does. But they cite every town as a source for some of these numbers. And I'm going to say, I'm a, I'm a gun owner. As many of you know, I own um, a good number of, of firearms. And um, I'm going to call BS on some of this stuff. Okay, so so first, let's go through it. So when they say 22% of U.S. gun owners acquired their most recent firearm without a background check. Now, what they're trying to do is say, wow, we just have a rash of people out here buying guns without a background check. Now, those of you who own guns like I do know that one of the most common ways, especially after you first have gotten your few handguns, you know, you, you got your shotgun, you got your rifle, you got your handgun or two. Um, you know, you've, you've maybe on AR too, whatever, after you've gotten your initial, we'll call them a foundation of guns, you've covered all assets of gun ownership. You've got all the different categories, um, that you kind of need, maybe two pistols, a revolver, you know, you got your 22 for some plinking, right? You got your 45, everything else. After you've, after you've got that good base, you only really buy guns when they come across as a good deal. And most of the time when you get a good deal, it is because uh, a friend of yours has decided they want to sell a gun. Maybe there's a gun they see they want to purchase elsewhere, what have you. And so they want to sell a gun to you. So they're saying 22% of U.S. gun owners acquire their most recent firearm without a background check. But that implies that you just have a bunch of these owners out there trying purposely to avoid background checks. That's not it at all. In fact, in fact, it would, I'm just explaining you the stat. The stat is there, it's 22%. And if that is an accurate stat, I'm dubious. But if that's accurate, it's mainly caused by just, hey, a friend, a family member is selling a gun, so you buy it. That's it. That's what it's caused by. But they'll have you believe it's, it's quite the difference, right? Then they have this next stat here. 45% of gun owners who acquired a gun online the past two years did so without any background check. I have questions. <laughs> As any of my listeners out there, have you ever bought a gun online before? Okay. Now, personally, um, I don't think I have. Uh, I think I have once maybe. But anybody who is around the firearm world knows that when you you've got gun broker, you've got, uh, buds is a lot online. You've got these gun shops that do stuff online. And, and generally speaking, you are forbidden from selling guns, uh, on Facebook, on Craigslist on all these other places. They don't let you sell guns. And the only places where you can generally buy guns online is gun broker or, um, buds or some other place. And when you buy a gun online, uh, those websites require that it's shipped to an FFL dealer, a licensed dealer. And then that licensed dealer then licenses you, uh, quote unquote, the firearm. They run the background checks. They do the transfer paperwork. They fulfill the legal requirements. That's what happens. Um, I, in fact, have never personally heard of anybody that has bought a gun online um, without going through that. There might be some one-off stories about people who are able to buy a gun off Facebook because he was selling a gun case. I've seen that, of course, or something like that. But I think all my fellow gun owners would join me in saying 45% of gun owners who acquired a gun online in the past two years did so without a background check. That sounds like a BS stat to me. That sounds made up. I'd love to know how, what kind of confirmation bias did they go through for that? How did they attain that stat? And then the next stat here, they say 80% of firearms obtained for criminal purposes are obtained through transfers from unlicensed sellers. So this is why they say we need universal background checks. So they say 80% of firearms obtained from criminal for criminal purposes are obtained through transfers from unlicensed sellers. So what they're saying is, is 80% of the guns used in crimes are not bought from gun stores. Well, duh. <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah, generally speaking, criminals aren't buying their guns from gun stores. I'll tell you a good reason why. There, a lot of them are not legally allowed to own guns currently. A lot of the criminals committing crimes with guns, big surprise, big shocker, are felons, and they're legally barred from owning a firearm in the first place. And so if they want to acquire a firearm, they then go outside of the, the legal realms. How does requiring universal background checks fix that? You think by requiring universal, do, what, what do they think happens, right? That people are tracking down guns used in crimes and then they're backtracking it to the original owner and they're just like, yeah, I sold it to this guy. He just walked by me on the street and was like, hey, can I get a gun from you? And I was like, yeah, sure, here you go. What? Of course not. Of course not. The number one way firearms are obtained by criminals who aren't supposed to have guns is, of course, from either illegal dealers who are selling them to them illegally and they're acquiring them. The most common way criminal guns are acquired is through theft. And unless the KMA, Kentucky Medical Association, believes that they're going to have people walking around and that say, whoa, 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 before you steal that gun, before you take that gun out of that car, or before you break into this house and steal those guns, we're going to need you to pass a background check or we can't let you leave with them. I mean, how will that... And, and they're stating this as a fact as to why we should require universal background checks for guns. Because these guns are obtained without legal transfers. Yeah, because they're stolen. I mean, you can't get more... I, so stupid. I mean, you literally can't get more moronic than this. Why, why do you think that? And they wrote this down. They're probably real serious. They probably wrote it down. They're like, oh, yeah, that's just real good stat. That's going to really win people over. Without even thinking about how is this happening? And then what do they advocate for next? So you think, okay, well, the reason behind universal background checks is full of holes. The stats make zero logical sense. And then they make no logical sense once you figure, look at the stat and figure out why that's happening and, and how universal background checks will not stop that. But their next statement, their next, uh, uh, you know, resolution is about red flag gun laws. And in it, they say that Kentucky, uh, 68% of our gun-related deaths are due to suicide. And so because of that, they want to advocate for red flag gun laws. Now, I would ask you, this is a association of doctors, you know, you might assume that these people with access to your medical history, they might actually be the ones uh, calling in the red flags to begin with, might be a little bit of a power trip, but they claim that red flag gun laws will lower suicide. Now, for those of you who don't know what red flag gun laws are, uh, red flag gun laws are this um, extremely unconstitutional, in my opinion, process of you haven't been uh, accused even of a crime, let alone found guilty of a crime. And the government can just come in and take your guns because somebody has called them up and said, you know what, I think he can't be trusted with guns. And then they come in and they take your rights away. They take your right to, to keep and bear arms away with no jury, no due process, no even being accused of a crime. And then you have to go and stand in front of a judge and prove to that judge that you are not a crazy person who should be allowed to continue to own firearms. One judge, not a jury, which of course plays into that judge's uh, uh, personal convictions, their, their own biases. I mean, if it's a very liberal judge, they might think nobody needs to own a gun. If you own 30 guns because you're a collector and they took all 30, they may say, look, that guy's crazy for even owning 30 guns. He must be up to something because they can't fathom it. I mean, I can, I can cut this a million different ways to point out to you how horrible the idea of red flag gun laws are. But of course, let's ignore the fact that Mitch McConnell passed a law on this in the Senate. I talked about that a few, few episodes ago. But anyways, they claim that we need red flag gun laws and the entire purpose as to why it's because one in 10, by, by, with states that have red flag gun laws, one in two, 10 suicides are prevented for every time they take guns away. Now, let's, let's look at that stat. So first, they're already admitting that 90% of the time that you're taking away somebody's rights, they shouldn't have been taken away, that you're not actually preventing a suicide. 90% of the time, that's their first claim. 
But but their second claim then is one in 10 suicides are prevented with red flag gun laws. Well, there are five red flag gun laws, states, that actually have higher suicide rates than Kentucky does right now. I mean, 2018, Maryland, New York, Colorado, Hawaii, New Mexico, they all passed red flag gun laws. So when you compare 2017 to 2019 suicide rates, Maryland, New York, Colorado, Hawaii, and New Mexico all saw an increase in suicide rate. They saw an increase after the red flag gun laws were put into place. So clearly, you see them increasing. Red flag gun laws aren't that successful in stopping suicides. In fact, uh, many states that have red flag gun laws have experienced these, quote-unquote, mass shootings that, of course, when I say mass shooting, people think of the school shootings. They're not thinking of what makes up most of our mass shootings, which is gang violence. But anyways, they, they, they're, they're trying to address this, they say, with these red flag gun laws. You know, Colorado had a red flag gun law. What do we see there? California has had red flag gun laws. Illinois, Chicago has red flag gun laws. How many mass shootings do they have? It's truly an ineffective way to accomplish this. But what else? What else? What else do they have in their resolution? What else are they going to be spending their time, money, and energy on getting the Kentucky legislature to do? Scary ghost guns. That's what they want to stop. The scary, scary ghost guns. These are, according to them, unregistered and untraceable homemade weapons that can be made with a 3D printer or assembled from a kit. And of course, they cite that this, this instance has raised more than a thousand percent since 2017 ghost gun usage has. Now, of course, ignoring the fact that 3D printers were not uh, were prohibitively expensive and not commonly used until about 2015 and really didn't catch on till starting 2017, 2018. But anyways... They also state ghost guns are made of plastic and undetectable by traditional metal uh, detectors and other security measures. Did they research this at all? Like every single gun owner, every single person who knows anything about guns just heard what I just said and is like throwing their phone across the room. This is legitimately one of the stupidest things I've ever heard somebody say about guns most ghost guns are made of plastic and undetectable or many ghost guns are made of plastic and undetectable here's 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 the first problem with a lot of your claim here okay actually most ghost guns are made of metal see how ghost guns are made actually is people buy something called 80 percent guns meaning that they get hunks of metal kind of pre-cut out in the shape of guns and it requires them to then drill holes in it or do other things in order to put it together. And even so-called 3D printed guns have to have metal parts in them because plastics, there are no plastics that are strong enough to handle the repeated use of a firearm and stay together. This was before my time, though I, I remember I watched a documentary on it. Um, they said this about Glocks. If you remember when Glocks came out and their guns made a polymer, right? They're plastic guns. They said, oh, these are going to be undetectable through uh, metal detectors. And there's talks of banning them because of how undetectable they were going to be. But they weren't undetectable. They still have many, many, many metal parts in them because you need the metal <laughs> in order for the gun to operate. But even putting that to the side, let's pretend you have cracked the code and you've figured out a way to, on a 3D printer, print out every single part you need for a gun without using a single piece of metal. You've figured out how to make springs out of plastic. You've, <laughs> you've, you've figured out how to make springs out of plastic, guide rods um, out of a 3D printed material that doesn't fall apart. You figured out how to make firing pins out of plastic. You figured out how to make a reliable ejector out of plastic. Let's pretend you've figured out how to you've figured out how to make a a um, magazine or or a clip that is reliable with only plastic. That is not that is using a plastic spring 
So you figured figured all that out. There's still another big, big problem you have to this entire claim that guns can be printed from plastic and now are undetectable. And this is something that I think the doctors never thought to sit down and, and, and think about here, these Kentucky doctors. I'm honestly concerned about our medical uh, situation here in Kentucky, that this was drafted by apparently these medical... They're just so stupid. Okay, you ready? Here it is. Bullets. <laughs> I mean, bullets are made from metal, or at least lethal bullets aren't made from plastic. You can't. The, the, it's too lightweight. The propellant doesn't work. I mean, you're you're talking some next level next gen fighter stuff. I mean, I think I read an article like six months ago about the U.S. military um, contemplating uh, uh, using a polymer round instead of brass, so you could make lighter weight rounds, so the warfighter could carry more. I mean, I mean, this stuff is just not there. They literally, without joking, said that three D printed guns are undetectable with metal detect. I mean, that's, that is literally what they claim. I mean, as far as I'm aware, there's never been a multi-shot plastic gun, com completely plastic gun ever made. You, I mean, every single, even 3D printed guns, as I said earlier, on top of the barrel, how would you get rifling out of a barrel with plastic? And then after they go over this, they say, look, we're going to educate people on our own actions. And I mean, that, okay, if you want to do it. I mean, if your doctor is deciding to try to educate you about guns and wants to tell you that ghost guns are completely made of plastic and are completely undetectable, I mean, I guess that's their choice and it's your choice to continue to use an idiot doctor. But, you know, I, I have a hard time trusting the medical establishment on guns when, you know, during COVID, they told us, well, trust your doctor, talk to them about getting vaccinated, and then proceeded to have veterinarians giving out vaccines on the football fields in Scott County here. Something just doesn't line up. But that's not all they want to do. No, no, no. They also want to repeal our sanctuary state law, which says that uh, it protects Kentuckians from unconstitutional gun laws, and it forbids, um, of course, our state uh, police as well as um, law enforcement from working with federal government to enforce unconstitutional gun laws. Now, of course, getting rid of that law still allows sheriffs to decide uh, actually to even arrest federal agents for enforcing unconstitutional laws. But then again, then again, what do I expect from a group? There's nowhere talked about how this, the sanctuary state law is about unconstitutional gun laws. By its definition, they're fighting unconstitutional gun laws. So what KMA is saying is that they believe in, in, in unconstitutional gun laws being enforced because they don't care about rights. Here's another thing they say. They say a ban of semi-automatic weapons or a ban of assault and then in parentheses, they put semi-automatic weapons and killing enhancement features. A ban of assault, in parentheses, semi-automatic weapons. Semi-automatic, that is literally almost every single gun. I mean, that's that's most shotguns or a fair amount of shotguns. Uh, that's all pistols. Um, I, I mean, you could, I guess, consider revolvers to fall into that too. I mean, they're technically semi-automatic. You pull the trigger and a round comes out. Uh, that is, that is a lot of rifles outside of just your ARs, your AKs. I mean, that's a lot of your basic hunting rifles. So ban of assault, and then they just define assault as semi-automatic. And they want to ban also killing enhancement features including high-capacity magazines. Now, pause there. I've heard that before. What's banned high-capacity magazines? What does that mean? What is high-capacity? I one time Googled it, and they said uh, a magazine that takes more rounds than what it was designed originally to take. So the AR-15, when it was first made, 
was, I believe, designed to take 20 round mags. So are they saying that 20 round magazines, anything above that's high capacity, but they standardly now come with 30. I mean, my AR-10 came with a 20 round mag standard, limited to 10 if I want to go hunting with it. But if I own a belt-fed semi-automatic weapon, am I able to... I, I mean... I, Actually, you know, now that I think about it, they don't need to worry about banning high-capacity magazines. They're banning semi-automatic weapons. I mean, unless they're worried about bolt-action rifles having too long of a magazine on them. I mean, that's it. I mean, you don't need to worry about banning. You've banned all magazines because you've banned semi-automatic weapons. I mean, that, it's a, a ban of assault, princes, semi-automatic weapons, and killing enhancements. Features, including high-capacity magazines. Well, those are gone. You've banned some automatic. Rapid-fire increasers or bump stocks. I'm going to return to that in a second, but those are also... Don't need to worry about that. You've gotten rid of semi-automatic weapons. Silencers and guns without serial numbers. And they point to, to bump stocks, right? And, and, and in it, they're, they're quoting, of course, this every town. Now, every town says... That bump stocks take an AR, which normally only can fire 45 rounds a second, or sorry, 45 rounds a minute. <laughs> so every town says that ARs can only fire 45 rounds a minute, which, I mean, anybody who's ever shot an AR knows your fire rate's much more, can be easily much more than that. But and then they say that bump stocks kick it up to around 500 rounds a minute. But, you know, we lowly finger pullers, one shot around, can only pull off 45 rounds a second. Let me show you guys a little video here. Uh, this is Jerry uh, McLark. You can make it under a second. Here we go. Now, that was a little bit better. You saw how I was, I was punching out right on the timer there? Let's take a look at it. A point ninety six. All right. That was uh, old Jerry. He's a professional shooter. He was banging out five rounds on an AR under a second. That is right around 400 rounds a minute, a little more than 400 rounds a minute. That's almost 10 times greater than what they're claiming the fire rate of an AR is. And almost the fire rate of what they claim a bump stock elevates it to. In fact, Jerry here has another video where he races somebody with a bump stock and he gets out the same amount of rounds more accurately at only like one-tenth of a second slower. But, you know, but they're very pointing here. I mean, you can see they want to blame the gun or accessory. They want to blame the bump stock. They want to blame the, the semi-automatic weapon. They want to blame the ghost gun. They want to blame all this, and they don't want to blame the person at all. But what it really comes down to on how effective a firearm is, is it's about the user. Does the user know how to handle their firearm? Does the user know what they're doing? You know, I almost 100% of mass shootings are committed by people who have no clue how to handle a firearm, and they've never been around guns. And there's a reason why people who've never been around guns that don't know how to handle a gun are the ones committing mass shootings. And that's because if you grew up around firearms, if you grew up around guns and you know how to handle a gun, that means you've gone through education. And those of us who've gone through education, generally speaking, one, we come from a nuclear family that taught us good values, good morals. Two, we understand the importance of life. One of the things you're constantly taught when you're learning gun education is the importance of life. Treat every gun as if it's loaded. Don't point anything unless you're ready to shoot. Keep your finger off the trigger. These are all things centered around the idea that, hey, we need to preserve life. But that also is elevated as you look at gun owners. Typically, they're pro-life, meaning they're against abortion because they do value life, believe in God. And also, more importantly, gun owners as a whole typically value not just being alive, but living with the freedoms and the ability to make choices. And that's what needs to be taught. You want to get down mass shootings? 
why don't you teach some gun education courses? I mean, you point at and say most of our gun deaths, of children even, is not because of mass shootings, but it's because of mishandling of firearms of the kids. A simple and easy way to fix that without needing to take away anybody's rights is for KMA to advocate for hunter education and gun education courses within our schools. Offered as an optional elective that parents can put their kids in. So that way, children know how to properly handle firearms and to stay away from them and know the rules of guns. See, that's what needs to be taught. But instead, the Biden administration is doing the exact opposite. As I've covered in past podcasts, they're literally defunding these types of things. So I know I'll be the first to tell KMA, stick to medicine. All right. Coming up, the uh, an op-ed calls for a tenant bill of rights here in Lexington. We'll cover what that means right after this short break. All right, so an op-ed comes out here in the uh, Herald-Leader here in Lexington. That's paper here in Lexington for those across the state. And it's calling for a uh, bill of rights here in Lexington, tenant bill of rights. But this is something that um, I believe passed or some parts of this passed in Louisville already. Erlinger has seen some pushes on this. This is an issue going on all across our state of people pushing for some type of tenant rights. And it's understandable why they people might think that. I mean, you know, anybody who's looked for a rental will tell you that prices are higher. Um, places are crappier, right? There's, there's issues here. However, what they're calling for will do the exact opposite of what they're trying to accomplish. Lower rent and better quality housing. That's what they're trying to accomplish. But I think there's a few things we have to lay out here. We, I, I think we got to lay out a few things. I want to make sure, I used to be in sales, and there's a saying we used to say, which is reasonable people, equally informed, seldom disagree. And so if a person's disagreeing with you, it's because you all have different levels of information. And so there's some information I want to give you all to make sure we're on the same page so you understand where I am coming from. Okay, first, before we try to vilify landlords, and, and we do this with business owners too, we try to vilify business owners, but I think we need to understand who we're talking about, actually talking about. Because when it comes to landlords, everybody thinks of these giant companies that have thousands of apartments and you know, you know, millions of dollars worth of property, tens of millions of dollars worth of property. But understand this, the average landlord has only three properties. On average, landlords have three properties to their name and the value of those properties is uh, not really always all that high. In fact, 40% of landlords own less than $200,000 worth of property. And then another 30% fall in the 200 to 400,000 range. So 70% of landlords don't own more than $400,000 worth of property. Now, they may hire a property management company in order to manage their rentals. That's why sometimes you feel like, you know, there's only like five companies to rent from out there. But the actual owners of the home are individual property owners. In fact, it's the fact that there's these uh, landlords out there that only own a few, a handful of homes that creates the market opportunity for these property managers to come in. Because, you know, if you own two homes or one home, you know, oh, I got to find an electrician and I got to find this and that. And I got to find a lawyer and I got to set up the contracts for renting and go through the process of finding that. And I literally own one home and I just don't have the time to deal with that. While it, it's, it's, I can't quit my current job. I have one home, right? If I want to be a landlord and go through all that, I need to own 10 or 15 homes at a time for that really to be a full-time job. So a lot of times they'll hire a property management company for ease of operation. Sometimes that confuses people. Affordable housing and uh, not having affordable housing and crappy landlords are a thing. No, I'm not trying to say they're not. I'm sure we all have awful landlord stories. We could tell from over the years, but we do have current remedies in law. And this is the other thing I want people to understand before I go into where I'm coming from here. And so if you're in a situation and you have a landlord that's not fulfilling what they need to do, because we do have a bill of rights. You do have a bill of rights when you rent a home. 
uh, in-laws, things like evictions and everything else. But then also, too, um, it is outlined in your contract. Now, the contract you have with your landlord cannot violate any kind of laws that are regulating uh, that relationship. For example, um, you know, they have to give you an eviction period, so on and so forth. They can't just lock the door on you. Um, but you also have that contract in front of you. And that's what you've agreed to in order to use this other person's property. You don't own the property, of course, if you're renting it. Someone else does. You've signed a contract, though, giving you rights to it in return for your money. So what rights do you have? What, what ways can you remedy? So let's say we're dealing with a situation that we see. It's, it's, and this is funny because the liberals will use, just like in abortion, they use those small, small percentage of people who uh, are pregnant due to rape or incest to justify uh, the other 99.5% of abortions that have nothing to do with it. In the same way, they'll point at a few bad landlords who don't do what they're supposed to do is a reason why all landlords need to be put under this kind of force. So what can you do? Let's say you've got a crappy landlord. How do you fight back? Well, there's a few ways you can do it without even having to do any legal filings yourself. Now there is one legal filing you could do if, if your home is basically so awfully maintained that you can't live there anymore. Um, you can file in court yourself preemptively and, and file what's called a constructive eviction. So this is where they maybe haven't evicted you, but because of their failure to upkeep property or fulfill their end of the contract, you now uh, are being forced to vacate the property and are incurring damages. So you could sue um, on that preemptively, but there's two things you could do that don't even involve you going to court that if the landlord wants their rent money, they would then have to take you to court. And as long as you're well-documented, uh, you should be okay. Um, I'm not a lawyer. I actually, though, have been to court on an eviction and I won and I won by following the proper legal process. Um, and that's something that you all can do, too, as well. But I'm not once again, I'm not a lawyer. Right. But I'm going to give you uh, some knowledge. But I'm not a lawyer. This isn't legal advice. It's just knowledge. So here's what you can do. First. If uh, a landlord won't fix something in your house after you've well-documented that's broken and you've sent them plenty of, of communication and asking them to fix it and, and pointing out what the problem is and uh, they've had a reasonable amount of time to fix it, you know, a week or so or whatever, depending on what the situation is, AC, a few days, you know, if it's it's a day or two. Um, and, and, and if they indicate to you they're not going to fix it, they say, call the AC guy, he's taking a few days to get out there, well, then you can't do this. But um, if they're saying, no, no, you'll be fine, you'll be okay, and they just don't come out, well, you can do two things. One, you can decide to uh, fix it yourself, document, of course, the conversation with them, uh, get a, make sure you get a receipt for the repairs, then subtract that from your rent to them. And then if they try to evict you for that, just bring that documentation with you to court. You should be okay. Now, once again, not a lawyer, but you should be fine because you have followed a proper process. You've said, I've dutifully notified them. This was something he needed to fix. Uh, he didn't want to do it. And so therefore I fixed it and I'm just charging him out of the rent for what he did. A judge should rule in your favor. The other thing you can do is let's say it's a big fix. Let's say you've got a super leaky roof and uh, they refuse to fix it and it's thousands of dollars to repair and your rent is only like a thousand bucks a month, right? Well, you have another remedy available to you that doesn't involve you uh, uh, having to go to court either. And that is you can um, set up a kind of like an escrow account. So a second uh, bank account. So you need to open up another bank account and you can on time deposit your rent into that account while at the same time making sure you're documenting to the landlord saying, look, I've got this roof issue. It needs to be fixed. Here's the thing. I don't have the money for it. Um, I'll be depositing your rent into escrow account. Um, you know, and, and I would even go as far as to be sending the landlord the evidence that you've deposited this into an account and that you're withholding rent because they're failing to fulfill their end of the contract. In that case, you go into eviction court. They try to kick you out for that. You go into eviction court and uh, you say, look, I clearly had the ability to pay rent. I'm not after the fact claiming that I wasn't paying rent because of a repair. I am saying that I could pay rent 
He did, was supposed to repair this. He's not repairing it. I am prepared to pay him his full rent. It is in escrow. It is still available. And I would have paid my rent on time. Here's my evidence that I could have, but he failed with his duties. You could do that. And that is also, that is a legal option available to you. So it's important you know that you have those three legal options available to you. You can either fix it yourself, subtract the bill from the rent uh, with proper documentation. You can uh, deposit your, your rent into a separate account to show your ability to pay uh, and then wait for them to take you to court. Um, and then you can, of course, say, look, I shouldn't be evicted. I could pay my rent, but they were failing to do their duties. And then the third option, of course, is you could sue your landlord for constructive eviction. Once again, not a lawyer. Uh, check with a lawyer, I guess would be my official whatever. Or you could research it yourself. Obviously, when I went to court and won, um, I'm not a lawyer and I didn't actually consult a lawyer. I just did a lot of my own research. But those are options available to you. So understand, those are your current rights as a tenant. So what is it that they want to see in a tenant Bill of Rights. Well, according to their petition, this is what they want to see. They want a universal right to counsel an eviction court. Um, they say that this would ensure uh, that tenants facing eviction have a lawyer representing them. So they want a lawyer, a, a I guess either taxpayer funded or uh, I guess the, the, the landlord in some cases would have to fund it, um, lawyer. Uh, in order to represent them in court. And the reason behind this, according to the Lexington Fair Housing Council, is that tenants uh, win only 1% or less of all eviction cases. Wow. And they claim that, well, they're not often represented, but the landlords are an eviction. And a large part of that is, I think, just because we're not being very honest. I mean, in this same petition, in that same report, they state that 322 evictions filed in Lexington in December 2021. Of those, the vast majority, or 92%, uh, 295 cases were for failure to pay rent. And that's why they're not, that's why they're not winning. It's pretty cut and dry. Right. If you don't have well documentation of the damages in your home and they have outright just refused to fix it and you're just not paying your rent, yeah, you're going to get kicked out. That's fulfilling the contract. You got to pay your rent. And trust me when I say this, if a landlord sees they know if they know you know what you're doing and you're showing them you're either depositing the rent or taking care of things or you're saying the right buzzwords, they're not going to try to take you to court. They're going to try to take care of it because they're not going to want to take you to court because you actually are doing the right things. So they point at, well, tenants just fail in court. Well, tenants are the number one reason tenants are evicted, failure to pay rent. That's pretty easy to prove. You didn't pay your rent. Did you pay your rent? No, I didn't pay my rent. Okay. Do you have a good reason? Well, the place is kind of not super well taken care of. Did you tell them that's why you weren't paying your rent? No. Okay. Well, then you're out. Sounds like you're making it up after the fact. Now, that isn't the only thing they want, though. They also under uh, they want an anti-discrimination side of things when it comes to renting. Now, it may shock you uh, to think that this is... Uh, uh, anti-discrimination needs to be claimed because it is already illegal to um, not rent to somebody based upon their skin color or uh, marital status or something like that. Um, but but they want they they want this to go further. They say they want the Urban County Council should pass a ban on discrimination based upon sorts of income, criminal history, credit score, eviction history, and immigration status. They claim a common cause of homelessness is landlords refusing to accept applications from people using Section 8 or homelessness assistance programs or people with criminal histories, low credit scores, eviction histories, or social security numbers, or no social security number. Often these tenants have the money to pay the rent, but they cannot find a place that will accept their application. I'm going to challenge that last one. They have the money to pay the rent. Um, if you have been regularly evicted, you probably don't have the money to pay the rent. But, but you know, the, this is, this is what it is. Okay. And, and this is what they're not thinking about. So imagine you're a landlord. Okay. And you're no longer allowed to find, first off, what's going to criminal history, right? I mean, do you want to know if a person was literally just arrested recently for cooking meth in a house before you rent them a house? Wouldn't you want to know? I mean, this is the thing. See, they've detached themselves. They don't realize this is somebody's property. They don't have to rent to you. You see, what they are, are pushing for here to a degree is slavery. 
They're asking for landlords who have worked hard to produce property. A lot of them have worked hard, whatever. And say whatever you want about landlords, but whatever. But you're asking people who own property to give you that property without any kind of choices of who they want in that property. I mean, that is that is literally a First Amendment violation. You have a right to associate with who you want to. And to say that you can't, quote unquote, discriminate about who's in your homes that you own because they have a criminal history is ridiculous. I mean, what if they're a pedophile and they're moving in across the street from an elementary school? That seems pretty basic. Based on source of income, they want you to prove your income. So you can't just write on paper, I make $10,000. I'd like to know how you make that money. And I'd like to see proof you make that money because I, I, I don't know if I want to rent this house to you uh, if I don't think you can pay for it and you're just lying to me and I have no other way to verify it. I'm not allowed to check your credit score. According to this, in eviction history, I mean, you, you, somebody comes in and says, I want to rent from you. Well, did you get kicked out of your last house for not paying? Maybe. And credit score, the ability to pay. I mean, keep in mind, this is this is where I go. The average, once again, landlord has three homes. A lot of times what you'll find is they're older people. They'll own a home or two. They'll rent them out. And it's a source of income on top of their retirements. And their, their, their knowledge of whether or not a home is going to be taken care of, how much is it going to cost them? I mean, those are all things landlords are trying to figure out, is they're trying to figure out who they want to rent to. How much is this going to cost them to rent to you? Are you going to pay your rent? They're going to run into problems. Are you going to create issues? These are all questions they're trying to answer because this is their property and they're the ones left financially on the hook. What happens to this person if they don't pay? Especially if the next person isn't even allowed to check their eviction history, what reason do you have to pay them? What reason? You face no repercussions for welching on a contract, for failing to pay, for tearing up their place, for destroying the place. You face no repercussions from it because you can just go to the next place and do the same thing because they're not allowed to look at your source of income, your credit history, your eviction history, your immigration status, anything. And then if you do destroy the place, what can they do? Sue you for damages? How are you going to pay? You have no money. I mean, they say often these tenants have money to pay their rent. They don't. They just don't. That's clear based upon their stuff. And I understand there's people with evictions are really old uh, that have money now or things like that. And they, they could take care of that. But I, I, landlords should be at least able to check the last year or two to see if you keep getting kicked out of homes. Uh, and, and, and the reason why I say this is incredibly important is because think about what they're trying to solve. At the end of this, they say tenants cannot afford the rent. We're having to live in homes that our landlords will not take care of. We need a tenant's bill of rights to protect us. This will do the exact opposite of what they're trying to accomplish. Why? Imagine you're a landlord and you're not allowed to check uh, their income source, their criminal history, their credit score, whether or not they just got kicked out of a place. Imagine you're not allowed to check any of that. What is the only other filter you have? Large deposits and higher than average rents. Because you know, with a larger deposit, at least if they screw you over, you'll have the money to um, alleviate your damages. This will do the exact opposite. This will create less people wanting to rent out homes, less people wanting to uh, uh, create that uh, inventory on the market for rentals. This instead will raise rents and cause even higher prohibitive costs to people being able to find a place as individuals charge very high now deposits. I mean, you see this in California all the time. Now, I agree. Rents are skyrocketing. I hear you there. But what can we do to fix it? Well, it's not that we need a tenants' bill of rights. We don't need more government regulation. We need the exact opposite because the issue with our rental markets is supply and demand. If there's ample supply on the market, that matches demand. Landlords are better. Rents are lower because they had to compete in a marketplace that has a good amount of supply. 
So how do we increase supply? How do we put more rentals into the market? Well, first, you got zoning laws and weaponizing of urban service boundaries. You see that particularly in Lexington, where if an area, if, if, if you're the wrong person, you buy up land, you want to put in a subdivision, they say, no, 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 no. We're not going to extend city services to you. So now you can't put that in there, which causes, of course, a crunch. The other thing that government does, especially in places like Lexington, a few other towns, is they spend tens of millions of dollars on something called PDR, which is property development rights. So here in Lexington, they go around, and I know they do this in other cities, they go around to these horse farms and they pay them tens of millions of dollars to never sell, not never sell their land, but they pay them tens of millions of dollars to make sure they never build another house on their land. Literally, they pay them tens of millions of dollars. to They get to hold on to their land, do whatever they want their land, keep it agriculture, horse farms, whatever, as long as they agree that they will never build more houses on the land. And then we wonder why we have such low supply when we have literally our government spending our tax dollars to make sure that there's not enough supply on the market. I mean, really, this just goes into cities and towns having what I call the identity crisis issue. This is really common. The identity crisis issue is this, simply this. What do we want to be? Do we want to be a big town, a city? Do you want to stay rural? And instead of letting it go, they decide they want to engineer their area. You, you can't, Lexington can't grow. Georgetown can't grow. Nicholasville can't grow. Louisville can't grow. Erlinger can't grow. Uh, you know, Northern Kentucky cities can't grow. Somerset can't grow. Corbin can't grow. London can't grow. Bowling Green can't grow. All these areas can't grow without more housing. And if you want to grow, you got to allow the housing to come in. But if you're not willing to allow the housing to come in, then stop trying to grow. But it's like they want to do both. And this is what it's creating. It's creating high tax, high rents with crappy landlords because the market isn't there. There's no market there. And so now they say, let's regulate these landlords even more, creating a situation where there's even less landlords, higher rents, higher deposits that need to be paid because they're not even allowed to check the background history of their tenants. Well, coming up after this, I'm going to talk about the GOP debate that went on, of course, um, Wednesday. Uh, we'll have that right after this. All right. The GOP debate uh, happened on Wednesday. And I don't have to talk about national politics. And there's a few reasons why. One, um, frankly, it's such a large task to fix. Um, you know, 100 senators elected by 50 different states. There's thousands of con or thousands of people that elect every congressman, tens of thousands of people. That elect every congressman, and there's hundreds of them, congressmen. Um, actually, 435 of them, to be exact. Um, but anyways, so I don't often talk about that and think it all starts local. And I think if we elect better people in our local elections, we will end up with better people representing us nationally because our local elections feed into our national level politics. I mean, Mitch McConnell's first elected position was Judge Executive of Jefferson County. Congressman Thomas Massey's first elected position was Judge Executive of Lewis County. Uh, Comer was a state house rep. Uh, Guthrie was a state senator. Hal Rogers, a Commonwealth attorney, I believe. Uh, you know, list goes on and on. In fact, Joe Biden's first elected position was... Uh, on county council or the equivalent of our um, magistrates on our fiscal courts. So these local elections feed up into our national elections. We elect better people locally. We will end up with better people at our national levels. So I don't really talk about it, but there was a presidential debate Wednesday night and I did suffer through it. So I kind of want to go over a few things. First, obviously Trump was not there. He did a interview uh, with Tucker Carlson. It was a fine interview. I'm not going to really go much over that because it's pretty much standard Trump talking points. I don't think he really said anything to uh, over the top or anything else. Um, you know, I don't really think he, he did much at all uh, there to really, I don't know. There's no big revelations. I mean, I, I thought his answer to the, um, 
oh, the Jeffrey Epstein question was kind of interesting. But, um, the, you know, there just wasn't much uh, newsworthy to talk about if you're a conservative. Now, of course, the left, he said a few things that as he was saying it, I knew the left would make headlines about. Um, but I want to go over the debate people uh, just because, one, frankly, it's a little more interesting to me just to see them fight it out. It's almost like watching a really good match between two sports teams you do not care about at all. Because, I mean, we all know Trump is going to be uh, the nominee, almost 100% guaranteed he ends up being the nominee. And on top of that, last night, almost every single one of them made it quite clear on why he will be the nominee. And it's not be just because Trumpism or whatever. It's because most of them suck. And by suck, I mean most of them come across as slimy. Um, unlikable, pompous, just completely unaware with where we are. We see this. I think this is what it is, is that, you know, so many of these politicians up there, there was a few differences. Vivek uh, Ramaswamy didn't really fall into this category for me. I, Ron DeSantis in his words doesn't. Um, of course, he's got, you know, as people talk about, he's got a little bit of a personality problem. Um, but this is like what I think people like Vivek, Trump, Ron kind of understand is this isn't business as usual. They don't realize where we're at. The other people up there were Governor uh, Doug uh, Burgum, uh, Governor Chris Christie, Ambassador Nikki Haley, um, Asa Hutchinson, Arkansas Governor, and Tim Scott, Senator of South Carolina. And I think all of them spoke as if it was business as usual. They're talking as if our country isn't hurting on the brink of destruction, of financial cliffs that people are literally struggling. People feel like they can't breathe. And instead these people are pulling out the same old political lines and it's like, they don't get it. They don't understand where they are, but I will go through each of them and their debate performance. First, we got uh, Florida governor, Ron DeSantis. Obviously this was DeSantis's turn to kind of step up. His campaign has been faltering. Um, while he had some good lines last night, he had some good things. I did like the pushback he did on the raise your hand question about climate change because that was stupid. Um, I, you know, I would love to show you two clips from there, but I'm not allowed to because Fox has threatened to sue everyone and anyone that shows a clip from that debate. So I can't do that. So I'm sorry for those of you who want to know what I'm talking about. I apologize. But so you got Ron DeSantis and, and he had some good lines, but for, for him... One, he's got a personality problem, and he just seemed like a political automaton to me. And there's plenty of people I like, good politicians, quote-unquote good politicians, or people I like uh, for their, their beliefs, or people that I think are committed based upon their actions, um, not just their words, that come across like a typical politician. They come across like they're not genuine. They come across like you're trying to figure out if you're talking to the real them or not. I run into that with with some of our, our representatives at our legislative level that I talk to, governor candidates I talk to. Uh, and there's times, especially some of the ones that um, I'm talking about on the local level that I get to spend more time with, that I see a crack and I see a breakthrough and I go, oh, I'm talking to the real person. And it makes me like, okay, this is the real person, right? But I think Ron DeSantis uh, uh, suffers from that uh, thing where he's just not very relatable or likable in that way. Um, you know, he just seems like a way too polished of a politician. And, and last night, one of the things that I noticed that struck me was he'd be like, they ask a question. He's like standing there, like stock still, and then flash over to him. And it was almost as if uh, somebody pulled a pool tab. Like they asked him a question, they pulled a pool tab. Uh, and then he repeated out his rehearsed answer. It just, it just seemed like he was there. You pull the tab on the back of his back and then he was like, huh, I'm here and I'm ready to give you the answer that I practiced 10 minutes ago. And it, it just seemed like, you know, you're pressing a button on an action figure and they're giving you their pre-recorded lines. It just came across that way. I'm not saying that was what's going on. It came across that way. Um, Doug Burnham, I, I'm not going to spend much time talking about him. He was there. Um, I, I don't know why the guy's running. Uh, Chris Chrissy uh, made it his his prerogative to shame uh, the rest of Republicans for at all liking Trump. Um, last night, he uh, repeatedly said, he, he said a few things, uh, him and Asa Hutchinson both did, but he said a few things obviously attacking Trump um, that I think of is is definitely just playing the game of uh, of 
what the liberal media wants him to play. I mean, Chris Christie used to be a big fan of Trump and now he hates Trump and it's just him doing whatever Chris Christie needs to do that he thinks makes him politically uh, relevant still. Um, you know, he got into it a bit with Vivek. So did actually Mike Pence got it, uh, into it a little bit with him. Um, frankly, I think, I think once again, he just came across so pompous and chastising that any kind of messaging he maybe was trying to get across. Um, and, and there's some things he's saying that I think maybe warrant an honest discussion, uh, but you can't do it with somebody who's just such a pompous jerk on top of that. And this is everybody, but Vivek and Ron, I literally believe that they will get us into war with Russia. I mean, I just, I think they will get us to a nuclear war. I just do. Um, I mean, you know, they're, they all like last night, they asked all these people about Ukraine and it was everybody, but Vivek and Ron was like, we need to escalate. What do you mean? Just maintain funding. We need escalate it, escalate it, escalate it. It just, that's what it came across. I'm not going to say they use the word escalate, but, but it was just like, complete and utter disregard with where we're at. I mean, they're literally like, we can do both. We can secure a border and give money to Ukraine. Why are we so worried about it? It's like, it's, it's, here's the thing though. We can't do both. You're spending too much of our money. You're deficit spending as it is. We need to make cuts. We cannot spend more money than have. We need a balanced budget. We need you to stop taxing us so much. We need you to stop causing inflation. And you can't do that if you continue to waste your money on everything you don't need to waste your money on. And that by that, we mean everything. But anyways, um, Nikki Haley, uh, I particularly found her unlikable. Um, she tries way too much of the I'm woman, hear me roar thing. And, and while I have no problem voting for women um, at all, I don't particularly have an issue with it. In fact, I have a woman friend of mine uh, in politics who actually she has a big issue with voting for women. Um, but I particularly don't find it to be questionable. I voted for women before in elections. Uh, the problem is, is I hate, uh, women running for office that want to make it a big deal that they're a woman. And there's a few politicians that come to mind to me, uh, even as I'm saying this, even locally in Kentucky that I just, it's just stupid. I, I I'm a conservative. I don't judge people based on their gender or their skin color. I, that's, I don't judge people like that. Okay. I don't, I don't judge you based upon necessarily what you have between your legs. And for you to bring it up, like it's a reason for me to vote for you is a big turnoff to me. I don't like it. It means I don't like you, but I don't like it. I don't want to hear you talk about womany stuff, like talk about your policies, talk about everything else. I don't care that you're a woman. Why are you bringing it up? And Nikki Haley did that several times last night where she got digs in at men as a whole. She, she had one thing where she said a line like, um, you know, if you want to hear people argue, ask a man. And if you want something done, ask a woman. Or she said something like that. It's just like, okay, I'm, I'm a conservative male. Why do I want to vote for you? Also, at the same time, she really buys into this DEI stuff. If you listen in her announcement video, um, and, and what I found is these Republicans, it's funny because I ran against uh, a trashy liberal Republican that believed in DEI stuff for state treasure. And um, they, they all have a dot. It's like they went to the same campaign school for how to say your liberal ideas. And they always say they're a new generation of conservative, which is another way of saying I'm uh, uh, just, I'm Democrat light. Um, so please vote for me because maybe we can win an elections that way if I just give up all of our principles. Um, and, and so she strikes me as that. She, I think Nikki Haley might be the most liberal person in the race, just my humble opinion. Then we have Asa Hutchinson. Now, actually, I heard Asa Hutchinson talk in Bowling Green at a Lincoln Day dinner there last year. That guy is as boring as he is horrible. He is absolutely boring. On top of that, I just boring. Like, no, you want to talk about Ron gets a rap for no personality. This guy is incredibly boring. And um, you know, he he claimed that he believes that um Trump uh can't serve because he looks at January 6th as an insurrection. He says January 6th was an insurrection caused by Trump. And literally, I, I don't know how I live in the same universe as people who call themselves Republicans. They look at that and they say, Oh, yeah, that was an insurrection caused by Trump. Literally, he said, go protest peacefully. Like the minute he says that to the crowd and then walks away, like Trump didn't coordinate those people ought to be there. Trump didn't coordinate any kind of action against the Capitol. And he said people to protest peacefully. How, if you even believe January 6th in and of itself was more than a riot, but an insurrection, how could you at all blame Trump for that? Other than Trump was speaking to a crowd and then you're just upset over what Trump said. 
you know, he, they, they want to harp on the Constitution. I follow the Constitution. The Constitution says that Trump shouldn't be able to be president. Uh, no, you don't. Trump does have a First Amendment right to free speech, and he didn't call for violence. He did the exact opposite. So please tell me in your warped mind how he committed treason. And of course, that's something liberals, blah, 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 but that's not what I expect for somebody with an R next to their name. And the last person that talked like that with an R next to their name was Liz Cheney, and we know what happened to her. And then we had Mike Pence, who I found to be the most insufferable jack wagon of the evening. Man, he's got that scowl down. He, he has a scowl that he does. He's like, ooh. Like when you ask him a question, he's like, ooh, scowling. Anyways, he's got that scowl down. And there's at one point during the night where he's like, I want everybody to say I followed the Constitution and not confirming Trump. Um, and and that was uh, an interesting moment, <laughs> to say the least, where he's like, please, everybody talk good about me. Um, that was pretty awful. But he kept going after Vivek for Vivek being too uh, young and inexperienced, because, of course, Vivek is 38 years old, which, you know... It, Vivek never said this, but the thing I was thinking is literally all these people have been on the clock for the last several decades, almost all of them, several decades, but all these people have been quote unquote on the clock for the last several years. And while they've been on the clock, while they've been on the clock, our country has fallen to where it is now. And the only person who slightly pushed back against that actually has been Donald Trump at the national level. And Ron DeSantis is governor, though I don't know what he did in Congress. I haven't really looked into it too much. And so for Mike Pence to say, sit there and say, I'm the most experienced person here. Yeah, you're the most experienced person at doing the wrong thing. I mean, how many more times are we going to let you fail? How many more times are we going to let these neocons not roll back anything the left does and when they take over, just spend more of our money on more wars that they want to start until we say enough is enough. You had Tim Scott. Uh, of course, Tim Scott, um, you know, he's just, he's also, I think, a little more liberal. I don't think he's very conservative. And then finally, Vivek uh, Ramaswamy. I like Vivek. Um, I've actually read his book, Woke Inc. And, um, you know, I like generally how he thinks. I, I think he is being a little bit of a chameleon in what he says. He's new to politics, so he's just kind of talking and not realizing how things come back to haunt him sometimes. Um, and he and I think he hasn't necessarily, like most people who are new into running for office, they haven't necessarily fleshed out all their positions. They haven't been challenged on them. So they have initial thoughts, and then when they get challenged on them, they're like, yeah, maybe. And so you see them changing their mind. I think that's happened a little bit with Vivek. Though I will say this, he was the only person up there um, who I feel very confident would say, look, I'm, I'm not doing these endless wars. I'm not going to keep funding these things. I think that's incredibly important as we're looking at who we want to be because I'm somebody, I don't like these endless wars. I know there's certain people out there that are like, I love war. Ugh. And, and, you know, I, I just, we have a lot of issues like, and, and this is what it is. And I know people talk about being a shining light and everything else, but I always think of it like, it's like when you're on an airplane and, uh, they talk about when the oxygen masks fall, what you do. And what you do is you first secure the oxygen mask to your own face before you try to help others, even if they're your children. And in much the same way, I look at what's going on in the country and I say, look, we need to secure our own masks first. We need to make sure that our we're not deficit spending anymore. We're paying down our debt. Uh, our borders are secure. Our supply lines are uh, secure and brought inshore as much as possible. We need to make sure of those things here at home before we start spending billions of dollars overseas. Well, y'all, that's what we have time for today on the Andrew Cooperwriter Show. Thank you all so, so much for joining us. Uh, I hope you guys have a great rest of your day. Have a great weekend. We'll see you back here on Monday at one o'clock. We'll see you.